James chapter 2. Can you believe it? We're already almost halfway through our series on James. And uh, James is a book written by a guy called James, written to a group of churches that were on mission, like we want to be. They weren't being all cozy and introspective. They were thinking about telling everyone that would listen about the reality of Jesus Christ. We've been making the point that as soon as a church says, yes, we want to be on mission, uh, you need to get ready for challenge. And that's what James is dealing with. He's helping these churches that he's writing to again and again saying, listen, as you go about your mission, these are the challenges you will face. A little while ago, I spoke about really the challenge of comparison. Do you remember that? I spoke about the fact that as a church gets bigger, And the people around you and your small groups and the people that you become friends with, as the church grows, it becomes more diverse. And the temptation can be actually to get your eyes off Jesus and actually to become more and more, to be honest with you, focused on yourself in comparison with others. And the fact that that is never, never the heart of God. What we see today is interestingly, at the beginning of chapter two, James now, he, he, he has a passion that the churches that he's writing to, yes, would avoid comparison and the focus going on themselves, but he now deals with a subtle yet related issue that we can, as Christians, find ourselves slipping into. <clears throat> he says this in verse 1 of chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, the word partiality is a slightly old-fashioned word. What it means is do not have favorites. You could put it like this. Don't treat people differently based on external stuff. That's the Tommy Shaw translation. All right. Don't treat people differently based on external stuff. And now what he's doing, he's giving us another challenge that a church on mission will face. Not so much focusing ourselves, but actually focusing on the the people around us and kind of forgetting our supreme goal, which is focusing on Jesus Christ. And he'll show us in a moment as we read it that as Christians, we can find ourselves either focusing on and idolizing and being in awe of people and lifting them on, putting them on pedestals too much, or doing the opposite, which is looking down on other people and secretly putting them in a bit of a pit in our own minds. The specific example he gives here is to do with wealth, and we'll touch upon that. But this issue of being overly focused on people around us, and actually almost becoming swayed by by our perception of the externals of people, it's not just a money issue, which he touches upon, it's a massive issue. It is a massive issue, because the Bible says that mankind, man, looks on the outside, only God looks on the inside. And actually, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not, it's kind of irrelevant at this moment because this is a human epidemic. It's something we're born into. That's what the Bible tells us. It tells us that repeatedly there's something in us sinfully that just just like magpies, you know, we get obsessed with shiny things in our perception. People's age or people's gifting or people's wealth or people's looks or whatever it might be. And it is absolutely deadly, is what he's saying. You know, we don't have to tell our children when they're growing up, when you're teaching them how to brush their teeth, you don't have to tell them, hey kids, make sure you focus on these teeth, the external front teeth. Kids do that naturally. What they forget is the back teeth. All the energy on the front ones that everyone sees. That's where our natural tendency goes. We kind of forget the back ones often. You know, most of us would be more prone to putting energy into our physical bodies, our externals, 
than our internal soul. It's true. We can give ourselves diligently to diets and physical exercise and spend 10 seconds on our relationship with Christ because we are external by definition. And the reality is, this is something that the whole world actually can get sucked into, but this is the deal. Although most people in the world can see it in themselves, most of us, if not all of us, hate it in ourselves. Secretly, is there anything worse than feeling like someone effectively has made up their mind about you only based on your externals? We hate it. We hate it when we sense that people who don't really know us in life have effectively judged us and they don't know us. That's, that is a huge issue that we face in this world. So we see that, that all of us would identify with the, what we could call as the evils of externalism. But the reality is the world itself doesn't have a solution. But guess what, guys? The Bible does. It really does. And let's read together as James sets out the problem, but then in grace gives us the solution. Verse 1. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And then he gives an illustration. So for example, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into city church, into your assembly, and then there's a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you you, you can stand over there, thanks mate, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Are not the rich, the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Listen, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing really, really well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And listen, for whoever keeps the whole law but just fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, he also said, don't murder. So if you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you have still become a transgressor of the law. So listen, speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Lord, thank you for that last four words that just flood us with joy and mercy that we can even begin to taste afresh. Come, Lord, come into this wonderful church family. Come by your spirit. Let every heart here be both encouraged, convicted, built up, and restored. Thank you, your word is like honey, Lord. Thank you that it changes us. I need your help, God. I'll be honest with you, I need your help, Lord. Every week, I need you to come. I can't do this through wise words or good illustrations. It's got to be you, God. Please come and make this a time that is fruitful. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we see then in the first four verses are this kind of, um, this powerful illustration that I've just really made the point is this, is that this type of evil, and I use that word humbly, but still because it's in the text, this type of evil, which is where we focus on the externals, it's very easy. That's what he's trying to say here. It's dangerously easy. He says it here. 
He says in verse four, uh, sorry, in verse one, he says, show no partiality. He doesn't say, please try your best to not be too cliquey. He says, show no partiality. There's a weight to it. There's a force to it that comes straight out the blocks. There's a, there's a passion in his heart. And this is the reality is that there will come a moment where we will, the church of all the ages, we will be in eternity and there will be every tribe and tongue. There will be diversity that will blow our mind. And so he's saying right now, get ready, O church, for having no partiality, no external judging in your midst. Because if it's in you, it will kill you. You see, I love this about James. He's a man who's intoxicated with a picture of the church. He's intoxicated with this image, not of a nice little neat group of people who are all the same. No, no, as the church becomes more and more diverse, is that that tendency in us to secretly either lift some people up in awe or look down on others, that that partiality would be increasingly seen and shot down dead in our souls. That we would be those who increasingly spot it and then move through it. He says, hold fast. He's saying, hold fast to this. Your your faith, guys, is given by God, but you partner with him in holding it. There's this idea of almost grasping on with an aggression. Don't let your faith in Jesus be knocked around. Okay? The image here is quite a vivid one. It's almost like holding on because you will, if you are thinking in a worldly way, your tendency will be to be knocked around, either overtly influenced by people, swayed into treating them in a way that almost idolizes them, or the other type of swaying where you're kind of looking down subtly. And he says, as you, as you hold on to your faith, don't do that. And the illustration that he gives here is one of finances. What's interesting is, is that probably most people in the churches that James was writing to probably were fairly poor. Because it seems like they've been dispersed from where they were. And so they were probably suffering financially. Now listen, because of their perception of them being poor spiritually, they were more vulnerable, therefore, to idolizing those who were materially wealthy. Do you see the connection there? You see, if you feel, oh, I'm just very, very materially poor, there can be a tendency to overly esteem those who are materially rich. But this actually applies not just in terms of material stuff. If, for example, you see yourself as relationally poor, you see yourself as, I'm just really unpopular and I'm poor in that way, we can almost unduly put those who are, in our view, very popular on a pedestal simply because of that external reality of who they are. Or perhaps you're someone who say, I just, I'm really poor when it comes to confidence. And you live, to be honest with you, in this church in awe, in an unhelpful way, of those you see as being super confident. Maybe your internal spiritual life is fairly quiet. Maybe you're someone who doesn't massively externally express your faith in a very obvious way. And and you can almost feel intimidated at times by those who are hugely physically external in how they express things. We have an enemy is what he's saying. And he loves to get us looking anywhere but at Jesus is what he's saying. And, and we are those that we tend to idolize those who we perceive to be rich in the areas that we perceive ourselves to be poor in. So it may be that you make distinct, distinctions among yourselves, not so much with a financial element, although maybe that's there, but I guarantee your heart will find a way to make a distinction. It's just the way we are. So it could be that you make distinction, distinctions between people of different race. 
or different age. Maybe you secretly uh, look down on people who are younger than you or look up in an unhelpful way to those who are older than you. Or perhaps the way that people dress, you secretly can either totally overly admire or totally look down on. Or the way that people express themselves, those who perhaps are from a different part of the nation, different accents. We can, we can distinguish ourselves and make distinctions among ourselves based on whether we're single or married, whether we're married or with kids, or what type of kids we have, or where the school is that our kids go to, or what type of job we have. The reality is that there is this hugely destructive thing in us, which rather than saying that the church is one, brought by one saviour and brought together for one purpose, we can be those that give ourselves subtly to making distinctions among ourselves. It's very easily done. I want to just say this, is that he doesn't say here, you know, um, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? It's easily done. Try not to. Look at the words that he uses. You have become judges with evil thoughts. Now, I don't know if, if you're anything like me, but I find that hugely convicting. Hugely convicting. Because the more I meditated on this this week, I realized more and more I can subtly do this. I can find myself swayed by what other people think or, or people that I would massively esteem or, in fact, overlook people that are equal. And nevertheless, because of an external element, find myself being unduly swayed. And I just want to say this, is the Bible doesn't say all judgment is wrong. 1 Corinthians 5, for example, it says, what have Christians got to do with judging the world out there? Don't do that, all right? But it does say, but judge within yourselves. There is a good judgment that you see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And it's, this, is, this is the definition of good judgment in the Christian church. It's from a heart of humble love. It is focused on issues of godliness or sin. And it is for that person's growth and development. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about an, an evil judgment that is it's not from a heart of love, it's from a heart of envy or idolatry. It's focused on external stuff that person just is like, either positive or negative. And it's not for their growth, it's often for your own kind of sense of gratification or inclusion. Or sense of, well, I'm better than them, whichever way you go. So it's a very different thing here that he's laying before us. But this is the deal. And this is what we, as humans, we struggle with this. The Bible tells us so many attributes about God. He is good. He is faithful. He is everlasting. He is eternal. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. And he is impartial. He has no favorites. He doesn't judge us according to external stuff. God looks on the outside. No, man looks on the outside and God alone looks on the inside. I love Deuteronomy uh, chapter 10 where it says, the Lord your God, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, he is a great God, an awesome God, a mighty God. And then what does it say? He is not partial. He doesn't have favorites. And this is stunning. This is beautiful. And this is the reality is unless we start to realize that if we continue to judge externally, we will, we will either find ourselves condemned or superior. That's the deal. Let me give you an illustration. In his devastating book, Accidental Pharisees by Larry Osborne, well worth buying, he uses this illustration of two guys in his church. 
Ryan and Connor. He says, now Ryan handles conflict amazingly well. He never blows up. He finds common ground. He immediately moves towards a win-win goal. Connor is a hothead. Connor uh, finds that conflict brings out the worst in him. He goes for the jugular. He often says things he later regrets. From the outside looking in, it seems that God is most pleased with Ryan's response more than with Connor's. But there's more to the story. Ryan's calm response is part of his basic makeup. He's been that way from birth. The fact is, he hasn't changed at all since coming to Christ. He's pretty much the same guy now as he was then. Connor, on the other hand, was raised by wolves. He comes from one of the worst family backgrounds I've ever known. Drunken rage, flashing knives, occasional gunfire marked the near daily conflict in his home. He learned to survive by being tougher than the next guy. His current response to conflict, while far from exemplary, is light years ahead of where he was when I first met him. He has grown a ton. So with whom is God most pleased? Ryan and his mature biblical response, even though he hasn't grown since becoming a Christian, or Connor and his still hot-headed responses that are a massive improvement from where he first began. Don't you find that convicting? Be honest. Because when I read them out, I know we were all going, that Ryan, good guy. A bit like me, really. And actually, it's a trap. And that's what James is getting at. But this is the great thing, is that although we feel conviction here, then James what does is, is verse after verse after verse, he gives us hope. And the first wave of hope is for those of us who have a tendency to look down on others. Look here, in the very next verse, verse five, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Do you see what he's doing there? He's saying, don't look on the externals. Look on their identity in Christ. If they are a brother, if they are a sister, they are by definition now, Someone who has received the greatest gift, which is faith, present tense, and they are getting ready to receive one day the full inheritance of the kingdom of God. So whatever their externals, it is irrelevant. Say irrelevant. Say it all across the room nice and loud. One, two, three. Irrelevant. It is totally irrelevant. God looks on the inside. Man looks on the outside. And he's saying, listen, the reality is... That God is, he doesn't have favorites, but he does repeatedly say it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, it just is. Poor people generally know their need more than those who are wealthy. They feel it. They feel the fragility of life. But God doesn't have favorites. And yet we see wonderfully that those who are often at the surface of it, poor, are actually often those who have a richness of faith that God delights in. That God delighting because he's put it there. And interestingly, often those who even maybe are Christians but are materially wealthy, you see, have a taste of goodness. That means that increasingly they they don't care about the material stuff anyway. My dad's adoptive mum, Mary Elizabeth Dragoning, Metty, she was aristocratic. So she was vaguely related to the queen. She was a millionaires. She was super posh, but she was born again. And what that meant was is that she gave all her money away, millions of it. She just gave it away. She didn't, no one had to tell her to. And she lived as a nurse most of her life in Africa. She drove a beaten up old metro, lived in a very small house in Torquay when she retired. And she wasn't trying to be holy. It was that she was so rich in faith. Do you understand that? 
Internally, she just felt so blessed by God that this other stuff was like, man, I can hoard it or I can, I can invest it into eternity. She wasn't trying to be really good. She just was rich in faith. Now, the ironic thing is, if she walked in here, if you were like the person that James is dealing with here who looked on the externals, you could look down your nose at her, potentially. If you were like that, you could say, well, she's not very impressive, wears very normal clothes, look at her car. And yet he's saying, whoa, don't do that. Don't do that. Be so careful. Because those who are often, even materially wealthy, when they taste the true wealth, something shifts, something happens, which means there's a divine equation that means everything starts to shift. And with human eyes, we can fall into comparing ourselves. Now, let me just ask you this question, because it may be you go, well, I don't, I don't look down my nose at those who are materially less wealthy. And that's great. But let me ask you the question then, who do you think you might be prone to potentially seeing as poor in some ways? It could be based on age. Sometimes we look down on those who are younger or those who are older. Or it could be based on what type of newspaper they buy or what their accent is like or what clothes they wear or how they experience God or, or what type of job that they have. Just allow God even now just to check your heart. Say, Lord, it may not be material stuff, but it, do I find myself ever doing that? Because he, he just says he just got to realize that ultimately these, these, these brothers, and brothers and sisters who are Christians around you, they are rich in faith. And they are those that are heirs of the kingdom. And you see, this is a massive, massive theme in the, in the New Testament. Is that we have to interpret our lives in the present in light of what is to come. And it is a massive deficit in the church in the West right now. We live unconsciously so locked into the present, so looking at the external and the, and the now, we don't understand that huge sways of power are missing from our lives because James and Paul and Peter and all the guys and ultimately Christ who lived temporarily on this earth, they had one foot here and another foot rooted in eternity, helping them the whole time to say, oh, don't ever treat another brother or sister like that, even if they're in some way, in your view, externally not as impressive as you think, because don't you understand? In eternity, you're going to spend eternity with them and they're going to be just as much heirs of everything as you are. You see, every human is desperate for an upgrade in everything, right? You get your phone within minutes, you want an upgrade, you want an upgrade, man. You know, you get some new clothes, you want an upgrade. You get on a plane, free upgrade? We're obsessed with upgrades. We want one house and then we want another house and then we live in one nation. We go, oh, it might be better over there. We'll have an upgrade to that. We live in an obsession with upgrades. And he says here that even if people are materially completely poor, but they know Jesus, they are promised an upgrade when they get to eternity that will blow our minds. Which means you can be a single mum in Africa with absolutely no material blessing that is, that is obvious and yet have more internal riches of faith than a billionaire living in L.A. That's the gospel. The gospel says that God gives you something now and he prepares you for a world to come where if only, if only we could genuinely taste it, it would infect and change the whole way that we view church right now. We would never just be like, oh, that's that person there in my small group. We'd be like, oh, that person is getting ready for eternity. This is an heir of the kingdom. Do you understand? We're to view each other 
We're to view each other with eyes that are infected and affected by the world to come. This isn't just like, you know, Father Christmas, oh, you know, fantasy world. This is absolute mainline New Testament power to live your life now like Jesus did. For the joy set before him, he endured right now. Some of us so need to be bathed more and more in what the world will be like it will affect massively how we view now. Romans 8 says, it says the sufferings right now, they just don't compare with the glory that is to be unveiled. 1 Corinthians 2 says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no the heart of man imagined. It's like you can't get your brains around it. The weight of glory. Do you know it even says this, that you're going to receive a new body. Some of you are like, I like my body, thank you very much. I have rather nice hair. Well, my hell, listen, it will be stupendous, okay? Philippians tells us that we no longer are those that are citizens of this earth, but we have now been raised with Christ. And it says this, that from heaven we eagerly await a saviour who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. I love what C.S. Lewis says about that specific. You see, I've just said that and you've just gone, oh, that's nice. But when you start to realize, he says this, it is an amazing thing to C.S. Lewis to live in a church and remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person that you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. That's mind-blowing. Such will your transformation be like. We've had a spiritual resurrection already. Amen? That's what happens when you become a Christian. You get united with Christ and spiritually you're in him. But the Bible says that one day you will be physically raised. And that means that therefore you've got to live now with the same sense of dignity over every single person that knows Christ. Saying, wow, I can't wait to see what you're going to look like in heaven. And it just means that you can't be. You can't be someone who looks down on other people because of ridiculous externals. It starts to melt away. But then he gives us a second huge key. Here we see in verses 6 and 7, not for those who tend to look down on others, but now he helps us who tend to look overly up to others. Look, in verse 6 and 7, he says, Listen, but you have dishonored the poor man. And then he says, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name? Do you see what he's doing? He's been lifting up those who are poor and saying their identity, their dignity is rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. And now he's just saying, oh, by the way, just have a reality check, all right? The, the ones that you're like pandering over, oh, come and have this seat. The ones that in your heart right today, you look around this room and you go, oh, oh, look at them. Wow, I wish I could, oh, that's amazing. The ones that we revere and almost deify, maybe your parents, some of you, you're controlled by your parents. Not, you don't just honor them. It's like, I have to have their approval. Or maybe it's your, your workmates. Or maybe it's those around you, but where we find ourselves not just healthily respecting, but it's like they have a control. They have a control. He's saying, listen, with these guys, are they not the ones that drag you into court? He's saying, are they not the ones who may be rich externally, but rich in here? You must be joking. You must be joking. He's saying, don't be someone who, who overly focuses on those things. And, and I, I would just say this again, it may not be wealth for you because the reality is we live in such a wealthy nation. What is it for you that you find yourself 
when in the presence of someone who is rich in that way, potentially partial, potentially showing them a favoritism, being swayed by their external stuff, whatever it might be, that, that leads you into a place where you're not being yourself. Let me give an illustration. For me, it's age. Age, older people. I don't know where it's come from. I went to a school which was very strict, and my mum and dad are massively revered. But I found as I became a leader, um, older people, just by their age, I, I found myself like, <gasps> you know, what they thought meant 10,000 times more than what someone who was five years younger than me thought. Bizarre. And, and it wasn't just, I respect older people. It was like this weird thing of like, I've got to have their approval. I remember once God showed this in my heart because there was a guy who's no longer in the church and he was in a ministry team. But to be honest with you, his marriage really wasn't in a good place. And he, was, he, had, he, he brought that to me. He was humble and honest about it. And I just, I felt the right thing was to say, look, brother, whilst you work this through, because it's really serious, how about you just step back from that situation, that ministry situation, so you can just focus really on this situation. Thinking he would go, good, that's a good idea. Yeah, he didn't like that suggestion. And uh, to be honest with you, he had a huff. He had a huff, he got cross. And what he did was, what I've noticed often is, at first he was sort of uh, actively aggressive almost, really cross. And then he thought, oh, Tom's not responding to that. I will be passively aggressive. I will withdraw my approval and my support. And he sulked. (laughs) And at first I didn't know what to do. I was like, my goodness, this was dominating as a leader. I I really want this guy's support. What do I do? And then I felt God say, yeah, but what would you do with your kids, Tom? If they had a tantrum, if they, you would just ignore them. You'd love them and you you wouldn't buckle to it. You wouldn't be swayed to it. I was so tempted to be like, oh, okay, okay. I was being silly. Sorry, me. There you go. Have your roll back. I thought, no, this guy needs to know. He needs to know this is serious. And so I ignored him. Well, not, not ignored him. I was polite to him. I ignored the strop. And so he was like, and I was like, morning. All right. And actually it wound him up, but in a really good way because his strop wasn't having the effect. Now that's a silly example at one level, but it's quite a personal one to me. You will find that there are things and, and things that people have that you can allow to control you and allow you to, to not act in a way that's true to God. And the kindest thing I probably ever did was that, to that guy. So we find that he gives us an issue here um, that is really to do with weight. <laughs> what do I mean by that? In the first verse, he says, the Lord of glory. Glory is about weight. It's about God's weightiness. When you know God's weightiness, what it means is you are empowered to not give humans an undue weight based on external stuff. Do you see? That's what we do. When we allow others, because of external things in their lives, their age or whatever it might be, to control us, we're actually wrongly giving that weight and glory. And actually, it just goes in an instant. You know, Jimmy Savile, amazing guy. We give glory to him. And then it's revealed that he's very, very human in a really scary way, and instantly all the glory goes. And we think, why, why would I ever, you know, why would I give gl- glory to another human like that? And verse one says the key for us is knowing that we are in the Lord of glory, that his glory will never change, is that when you know that he is the one that you're in, the weighty one, the strong one, it empowers you. Some of you are in a work situation, and, and you need to know that although you're to love and respect those around you, you are not to be intimidated or shaped by or swayed by those around you just because of one 
gifting or situation in them that ultimately is just there because of the grace of God. Do you understand that? And, and then we see what he does is he then moves on. It's not just about God's glory, but the third solution he gives us is about love. And we read it here in verse 8. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see that? How do we make sure we're not controlled by those? He says, listen, you've got to understand this royal law. That's the law that Jesus, when he was asked about, what's the most important thing, Jesus? He said, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Those two last words are very important. Don't love your neighbor as you love God. We love God by worshiping God, right? He's perfect. He deserves 24-7 non-stop adoration, emotional, spiritual, physical worship. Bang! All the time. Amen? Amen. Thank you. You don't worship people like that. You don't love people like that. How do you love yourself? Love your neighbor as yourself. Listen, there's two elements. Number one, hopefully, your love for yourself is based on this. Number one, you're not impressed with yourself. Some of you are like, uh, yes, yeah, yeah, that's right. When you look in a mirror at 6.30 a.m., are you impressed? No. True neighborly love that cuts through externalism is based on being not impressed with yourself and therefore not impressed with others. The second element is that although you're not impressed with yourself, you do care about yourself. You do love. You do attend. That's a good thing, to care about yourself to a measure. Now, this is what he's saying. He's saying, listen, if you want the third solution that will empower you to be not swayed, either idolizing others or demonizing others, this is what you need to understand. It is not just about God's glory. It is the only way that true, agape, Christian, world-changing love is released into a body. It's the only way, is if you love your neighbor as yourself. Don't love your neighbor in a way where you're intimidated or overly impressed. That will mean you never challenge them, you never confront them, you never actually lovingly do what God calls us to do. And the church stays stagnant, no one gets lovingly challenged. Because the love we've got for each other isn't a, a proper neighborly love. Do you see? And I had one person say to me, said, I've come to this church, I love this church, and there's lots of love, but not a challenge. No one's challenging me. I thought, nice. I like this guy. This is good. I want to, this is good feedback. Yeah? Hebrews 3.12 says, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that you may not be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. So this is a love that's, that, that's based on not being impressed. That's the first element. I remember, I remember uh, years ago, I, 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 led a, I led a conference called Mobilize, and this American preacher called C.J. Mahaney, who's amazing, had come and preached. It was amazing. And afterwards, um, he was chatting to someone, and I kind of did what leaders do wrongly. They hover, expecting preferential treatment. I mean, I wouldn't have put it like that, but I was just hovering, thinking, he'll know I'm here in a moment, because I'm hosting, and he'll press pause on this, this person, whoever it is, and he'll talk to me. Well, I waited five seconds, and I hovered. 10 seconds, still hovering. 30 seconds, I'm hovering and feeling a bit of a wally by now. I'm like, <coughs> CJ, <coughs> here I am. A minute goes past, and eventually he calmly finishes his conversation with the person, unhurried as if I'm not there, giving him his full attention. And then, in his own time, he goes, hi, Tom, how are you? And I learned a profound lesson at that moment. I am not more important than that guy. Okay, and CJ was loving me as he loves himself, as a neighbor. 
He was loving. He wasn't impressed with me. He wasn't controlled. Oh, it's the host. Quick, I must stop this conversation. He was just rooted in God. He knew the Lord of glory, the weighty one. He's in him. And this guy has no weight. (laughs) Okay? He's just a guy. And it was so important. And some of you need to know that you're, you're swayed by people all the time. And God wants to break that free. He wants to break it free. And he gives us a final key here. And this is the best to last. Are you ready for this? It's in the final four words of the whole section that we looked at. The other solutions are powerful. They're good solutions, but they're small s solutions ultimately compared with this last one, which is capital S. For mercy triumphs over judgment. Can we say that both here and in Whitstable together? One, two, three. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Hallelujah. Oh yeah. You see, God is a God of judgment, okay? He really is. And at the cross, we know that he dealt with the issue that needed to be dealt with. But can I say this, is that Christianity is ultimately a religion of mercy more than judgment. What is the symbol? What is the symbol of Christianity, John Stott says? It is the cross. It is the symbol of mercy, not the scales of justice. Hallelujah. Tom Watson, he says, our God, he loves, he loves to pardon more than punish. The Christian God is a God who is a God of holiness, who is a God of justice. And gloriously, we know that at the cross, he has dealt with things. He hasn't overlooked it. But this tells us that something stunning has happened. Something mind-blowing is that mercy has triumphed over judgment. Mercy is victorious over judgment. If it was just about judgment, we would be all right now not sitting here. But mercy, the Christian flavor, the Christian atmosphere is an atmosphere of mercy. And when you find yourself judging on externals, that's a surefire way, a sign that you know that you have slipped away from the river of mercy. Only when you're in the river of mercy tumbling forth through your life, knowing that God sustains you. He holds you. He's preparing a place for you. That one 10,000% is because of his mercy. Are you genuinely empowered to look beyond externals and to look beyond things that would make people be awesome in your sight or to look down on your sight? You see, guys, the Bible tells us that, and I love this, how does God express his mercy? We talk about the cross and we get tired with it and we just go, yeah, it's cross, nice. And that is heartbreaking because the mercy of God most clearly is seen at the cross. That is where God's glory, when it talks about the Lord of glory at the beginning, we often think about God in heaven and that's true. But there is nothing more glorious than the cross. It is the place of his greatest weighty glory demonstration. You see, think about this guys. I love this. I've said this before, but I want to say it again. Is that when God created the universe, the Bible tells us how much it cost him. Do you know what it cost God to create the universe? Um, He spoke. Do you think that cost God a lot? He said he spoke creation into being. And then later on it says he sustains the universe by the power of his word. So I think there's a bit of theme here. He's saying that God doesn't really break into a sweat when he creates the entire cosmos. Okay? It didn't cost him anything in that sense. He just spoke it. But this is the breathtaking reality, is that there is a second type of creation work that God gave himself to. Is that when he looked on this earth and he saw the universe, and it is amazing, and then he saw humans, and he said, do you know what, my pinnacle of my creation, they, they are in rebellion against me, and do you know what, I'm going I'm to embark on a second 
profoundly more costly work of creation. I'm going to send my son, God, to be born as a baby, to live single life in the Middle East, to be betrayed, to be rejected, and ultimately to go naked, humiliated, ashamed to a cross, and to suffer the full righteous judgment of God for Tom Shaw's sin and your sin. This is the mind blower, okay? First work of creation, the universe cost God speaking. To create a single Christian, a recreated one, a single Christian, it cost God dying. And can it be that he would die for me? Do you understand that? If you're here and a Christian, the only way you're here is because God died for you. You might feel no emotional sense of his love. It is irrelevant. Please don't ever say, I don't know if God loves me. He gave his son for you. God died for you. When he sustains Jupiter, it doesn't even break him into a sweat. But to create you, now, as a recreated one, it costs God dying. What more could he do to demonstrate his love for you? What more could he do to scream, I'm a God of mercy? He gave you faith in that thing that is salvation. He sustains you now. It says that he lives to intercede for you. And it says that one day when you go to glory, even then it won't stop. Even then. It says in Ephesians chapter 2 is that we are seated in heavenly places. Why? So that in the coming ages, that's heaven, he, that's God, might show you the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness to you in Christ Jesus. Even eternity will not be you paying yourself your debts back. It won't be you scurrying around, making much of God. It says it will be about him showing us the immeasurable kindness. It's going to be heaven will be about the father saying, look at my son. Wasn't he amazing? Isn't he amazing? Heaven won't be like, oh, we've now moved on from the cross. It will be glorying in that God died for humans. That's what it's going to be about. And I'm sorry if I'm emotional, but man, that blows my mind. Does anyone here resonate with that? Does anyone here say, this is, as the psalmist says, such knowledge is too lofty. It melts me down. I can't cope. Suddenly, mercy, the human word mercy, it just seems so inadequate when I think about the God of the gospel. That is why it's called good news. Because you don't do anything. You sit down and you receive it. And you get ready for eternity where he will be showing you, he'll be washing your feet, he'll be serving you for eternity because that's the only way he gets the glory. He's a God who loves you more than you'll ever know. And your, your being here today is not a chance situation. He adores you and you can rest knowing that he will forever show mercy upon mercy to you because you are in his son and he adores his son and he's never going to have an off day with his son. Amen. Oh, I love the gospel. I love it. I love it, man. That is what Christianity is. It's not about coming and sitting on a green chair and doing this. It's not about religion. It's not about rules. It's not about giving money. It's about receiving mercy. That is mind-blowing. Can I pray for us? Lord, I pray you might just want to receive your hands. If your heart's hard and you just think, that's nice, what's for lunch? I pray, God, please grip us with a sense of the mercy of the gospel. Lord, the church in this nation is asleep. Lord, and we need to be woken again and again. 
Lord, we only find freedom from distinctions and cliques and externalistic judgments, Lord, when we are melted by the mercy of a God who laid down the right to judge and said, no, I'm, I'm going to judge, but I'm going to do it through the lens of mercy. Lord, you could have looked at us, you should have looked at us and judged us, and yet you came and you, you said, I want, I want to win them. I want each and every individual. And right now, some of you, you, you just still are yet to feel a revelation in your heart of the intensity of his love for you, you personally. And I want to pray now for that weighty impression in the hearts of the people in this room. Right now, God. <laughs> yes, Lord, do it. Flood us, Lord. Change this church. Do something in our lifetimes that would make us speechless. Show us, show our blind eyes the magnitude of this gospel. I pray for many to not be able to sleep at night because of the grandeur of what it is you've done. I pray that. I pray for many to find fresh boldness to speak to those who don't know Christ because of it. the gospel is, is 10,000 times greater than they ever realized. I pray for Christians here today who have become religious. Break it, Lord. Soften them. Flood them with your spirit. I pray that there'll be many who for the first time genuinely cry, Abba, Father. Thomas Watson, he said, he said, the mercy of adoption is greater than even the mercy that Adam had in paradise. Oh, Lord, I pray just for waves of revelation upon us. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We honor you. We honor you, God. Just be before him for a moment. Oh, weight of his glory. The weight of his glory at the, at the cross. The weight of his glory at the cross. God, we just love you. I just pray even now for some who are just so locked in to their looks and they're exhausted by comparing themselves with their brothers and sisters. They're exhausted by feeling like a failure or by feeling superior. Lord, ruin us. Free us. Give us extraordinary eyes of revelation that we would just be those that say, my identity my identity, I am one that has received mercy, does receive mercy, and will always receive mercy. Lord, I just pray for every heart here in this just holy moment that you would just protect the soil of our hearts. I pray against weeds growing up, clogging the truth. I pray against hard hearts. I pray against birds coming and picking it away. I pray that maybe even this afternoon some plans will be changed. I pray that what's been spoken through your word would just be held and cherished Pray for small groups across East Kent this week as we go deep. Please, Lord, just continue to fatherly change us and shape us and free us.
Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen.